0: Take your Bibles out and uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to continue this morning in our series on the book of Acts. Uh, The overall series I've entitled Good News for the World. And indeed, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news for the world. And uh, this morning, we're looking at the topic Obeying, Praying, and Waiting. Obeying, waiting, and praying, Uh, beginning in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. uh, Luke writes, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two: Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all show which one of these which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles god we are so grateful that we find in your word the witness of the birth of the church and how the apostles began spreading out and taking the good news to all who were around them. Lord, what a testimony, what a witness they are to us about what we are to give our lives to. Lord, we know there's no greater business than being about the Lord's business. There's no greater message than the message of the gospel of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, and that through faith in His name, and repentance of sins, we can be born again. We can be reconciled with you and have a home in heaven with you for all of eternity. God, I pray that you would strengthen the church of today. Lord, help us to get back to the main thing. Lord, we thank you today for those men and women that we celebrate this weekend who have given their lives for their country. And may their lives serve as an example to us. That as we serve in your army, that we are to even lay down our lives if necessary. God, this morning I pray that you would give us hungry hearts to hear your word. That your spirit would be at work to to convict our hearts, to change us where change needs to be made, to encourage us where we need encouragement. And Lord, we pray that through the preaching of your word, you would be pleased to open someone's heart to faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to go back in your minds with me for just a moment to the Old Testament illustration of this young man by the name of Daniel. As we think of the life of Daniel, he is certainly one of the greatest examples anywhere in the Bible to us of a young man who is willing to pay the price of obedience to God. He waited on God, he prayed, and he obeyed. Now you remember the story of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, uh, we know that in 605 B.C. and then again about 596 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, came into Judah to attack Judah. And, and he destroyed much of Jerusalem. He tore down the walls around the city, destroyed the city, wiped out the temple. And he took the people of Judah captive to Babylon where he held them for 70 years. And along with taking the, the captives, he also made certain that he got the cream of the crop of the young people. You see, he wanted to get the young people, the smartest, the brightest, the most devoted, he wanted to take them to Babylon and make Babylonian disciples out of them. Some have called it Operation Assimilation. He wanted to make disciples out of them so that they could help him to rule the other people, the other Jewish people in the land. And Daniel was in this group that the king set his sights on that he was going to make him this very important part of his court. And the Bible tells us that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not disobey God. He would devote himself entirely to the God of his youth. He would devote himself to God's word and he would not defile himself with the ways of the Babylonians. And that's exactly what Daniel did. And the Bible records for us how for all of those 70 years, God used Daniel in a tremendous way. Every time we read about Daniel, he is a model of obedience and a model of prayer. I think of that vision or that dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had of that statue. And none of the wise men in the land could tell Nebuchadnezzar what that dream meant. And Daniel came in and he appealed to the king that the king would give him some time and he was assured that God would make the interpretation known. The king gave him time and Daniel went and rounded up some of his friends and said, you go to the Lord in prayer, I'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll trust God that God is going to show us the interpretation of the dream. And God did. On another occasion, the new king, had passed an edict that nobody could pray to their God. If anybody was going to pray, it had to be to the king alone. And the Bible tells us that Daniel did what Daniel always did. He went up to his room, he opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and he fell on his face before God and he prayed to God. Now, we know what happened as a result of that. He got thrown into the lion's den, but again, he did not bend the knee to the king. He stayed faithful to God, obedient to God, and God delivered him. Great example of obedience, waiting on God, and praying. Folks, as we turn to Acts chapter 1 this morning, that's exactly what we see the early disciples doing in Acts chapter 1. They are waiting, they are obeying God in what they know to do, and they are committing their way to prayer. Now Pentecost would happen ten days after the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came upon them and baptized them and, and filled them. And when the Holy Spirit did that, they would be empowered to go out into the world and be witnesses. You'll recall they wanted to get caught up. They wanted to get sidetracked and distracted in talking about end time events. And Jesus said don't worry about that. All of those matters are in God's hands. What you need to concern yourself with is waiting on the Holy Spirit. And then when he comes on you, you go out to the world and be a witness of the saving grace of the Lord. It was a very straightforward commission, a very clear commission. There was to be no misunderstanding of what the Lord wanted his disciples to be about. Now as we saw the last time we were in Acts a few weeks ago, they were to be focused and filled. And the whole time that they were focused on their task and filled with the Holy Spirit, they could rest assured that Jesus was who ascended back to the Father, would be at the right hand of the Father, and he would be interceding for them, and he would be their advocate. And so they could know that as they were about God's business, God was with them. They watched Jesus be lifted up into the clouds. He disappeared from their sight. And I want you to think with me a moment about what their mood must have been. If you had been walking with Jesus for three years, you had constantly been in his presence as his disciple, and he was your Lord and your Savior and your Master. As he's lifted up out of your sight, that would have had To have been a very lonely experience. Lots of questions must have filled their minds. But in our text today we see what they did. They obeyed. They waited. And they prayed. Until God gave them further instructions. They were about to have a fresh encounter with God. But before they could have a fresh encounter with God... Their own hearts needed to be prepared. Now what we see in our text today is that before we go out to men, we need to first go in unto God. We need to do business with God before we can carry the business of God out to men. Amen? Now, let's see how that develops in the text here. First of all, I want you to notice with me that they were obedient. Look again at verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, folks, what had Jesus told them to do? Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to keep something in mind with me this morning. These men, for the most part, were Galileans. Now, on top of that, on top of being Galileans, they had just watched their Lord be rejected, be put on trial, and rejected and crucified in Jerusalem. Now, what would have been the natural inclination of their heart? The natural inclination of their heart, I'm sure, was to take themselves off of the radar, so to speak, to get out of town and go back to Galilee. That's what you would have expected them to do. But they didn't. They instead went back to Jerusalem. Now why did they go back to Jerusalem? They went to Jerusalem because that is what Jesus had told them to do. And very simply they obeyed him. Jesus said on one occasion about obedience. He said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And the one who loves me, I will love and he will be loved of my Father and we will manifest ourselves or we will show ourselves to him. And so you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's not enough simply to have the commandments of God, even to read the commandments of God. The Bible says that we've got to carry out the commandments of God. James says in James 1, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. The whole book of James is an example that we've got to put our faith into practice. If our faith is real, our faith will be lived out in our lives. That'll be the mark of authenticity. Everything we do in here. When we leave this place, when we go outside of these doors, do we live out our faith? That's the mark of authenticity. That's where the Bible puts the emphasis that we've got to live out our faith, that a genuine faith will be demonstrated in our lives. I think of one occasion where Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Obedience." Obedience is a necessary component of the Christian life. I think of another story in the Old Testament that comes to my mind that's a great example of obedience. It's found in 2 Kings 5. It's the story of Naaman. Now you remember the story of Naaman. Naaman's a very important man. He's the commander of the army of the Syrians. The Syrians were the neighbors Uh, to the Israelites, and they were a thorn in the side uh, to Israel. And and the the king there, the king in Syria, had a commander, a commander of his army by the name of Naaman. Uh, And you'll remember, Naaman was a very influential man. Uh, Through Naaman, the Lord had given the Syrians many victories in battle, but there was a dark cloud hanging over Naaman's life. You remember what that dark cloud was? It was leprosy. Leprosy. Leprosy was a dreaded, incurable skin disease. In the worst cases, the nose would literally just rot off. The flesh would rot off the face. The fingers and the thumbs would just rot off and and fall off. Uh, Lepers were constantly hurting themselves because all the nerve endings would die. It was a death sentence. And it was a very lonely existence because if you were a leper, you were not supposed to mix with society. You were supposed to go outside of the city, at least if you lived in Israel, and live among a leper colony. And, and anytime anybody came near, you were to cry out, unclean, unclean. And so it was a miserable existence. It was a death sentence. And Naaman... They had a little servant girl from Israel and she told Naaman's wife, she said, my master needs to go down to Israel because there is a prophet in Israel and if he would visit that prophet, I'm convinced he could be healed of his leprosy. And so the king of Syria sent Naaman to Elisha's house. And when, Elisha, uh, when Naaman got to Elisha's house, it was a very disappointing experience for Naaman, at least initially. You see, Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. He sent one of his messengers. He sent one of his servants out, and that messenger said, Elisha says for you to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. Now, the Bible tells us Naaman's response. He was infuriated. He said, I thought the prophet was going to come out and he was going to go through some religious exercise and he was going to wave his hands and his arms and do this or that. If if all I need is a bath, I can take a better bath back home. And he turned away enraged. And and Naaman's fellow officers, his fellow men, they they said, Sir, what the prophet has told you to do is a simple thing. It's not complicated. What have you got to lose? Just go and dip in the Jordan River. And so he did. He dipped four times, five times, six times, no cleansing. But on that seventh time, what happened? He was cured of his leprosy. Just like the Lord had said through Elisha. You see, Elisha was the Lord's messenger. And when Naaman obeyed God's word through the prophet, we're told that Naaman was cleansed. He was healed. And Naaman ended up saying, now I know that there is no other God other than the God of Israel. He obeyed God and he got the victory. I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you obeyed God? Are there any areas of your life that you've kind of saved off to yourself that that area of your life, maybe it's a dark room in your heart that you've kind of kept aside for yourself and you've basically said to God, you're not welcome there. You can't be in charge of this area. Or maybe it's some call or commission God's placed on your life. And to date... You've not dealt with that. You've not obeyed God. I could be talking to some Some young men and women here or middle-aged men and women that you know years ago God called you to a life of missions or God called you to ministry. And you had other plans for your life and you've lived all these years in disobedience to God and every now and then you're reminded something happens and you're reminded of that call of God upon your life and you start thinking about that and you know that you have not obeyed God. Maybe there's somebody God's called you to speak to, to be a witness to. You've not done it. Something He's wanted you to do in the church and you've not done it. Folks, I'm telling you there will not be victory in our lives until we obey God. After all, why in the world will God trust us with anything if we won't obey Him? We don't stop the purposes of God. God moves on with somebody else who will listen, somebody else who will obey Him, and we miss the blessing. Are you missing any blessings in your life because you've not been obedient to God? The early church, the early disciples here, they were obedient. Against all natural inclinations, they went back to Jerusalem, and they did exactly what Jesus had commanded them to do. They were obedient. Second thing that I want you to notice about them. In verses 13 and 14 they were waiting and praying. Now, folks, this is one aspect of the Christian life that might be the most difficult thing to do. And that's to wait. And yet, what does the Bible say in Isaiah 40, 31? In Isaiah 40, 31, it says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting upon the Lord. They were waiting, in fact, you'll notice here that they were waiting for a period of ten days. Ten days was the period of time between Jesus' ascension that took place back in verse 9 and Pentecost that would not take place until we get to Acts chapter 2. So they were waiting for this period of ten days. Now, where were they waiting The Bible says here that they went to the upper room where they were staying. Now some have tried to connect this to the upper room where Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper with him. That could be true. We don't know. You see, it was pretty common to have upper rooms. A lot of people had upper rooms where guests, when guests came into town, your guests could stay there. It was common to have an upper room with a staircase leading on the outside of the house so they didn't have to come through your house to get up there. Common practice in the land. It could be any upper room. But we're told who was there in verse 13, uh, it, it lists out the same disciples that we see in the Gospels minus Judas Iscariot, of course. Now, folks, don't you know that Judas, the son of James listed here, must have been very grateful. Every time the biblical writers listed his name, they point out that he was Judas The son of James, Judas, not Iscariot. He must have been pretty happy they made that distinction. Now the only other difference in this listing of apostles that we see here is that the names of Peter, James, and John get moved to the front of the list. That's appropriate because you see it's, it's going to be those men that figure in most in the narrative in the book of Acts. Now, what were they doing as they were waiting there in the upper room? Well, the Bible says with one accord they were praying. And then as we read on in this passage, we know that they were also giving themselves to a study of God's Word. And so they were waiting, they were praying, and they were turning their attention to God's Word. Now let me say something about this Pentecost was about to happen Pentecost was going to be this one time event Now it's an annual festival that they had But what happened on this particular Pentecost That we're going to come across in Acts 2 That was a one time event When the Spirit came and fell on the disciples When the the Spirit came upon all believers You know in the Old Testament The Spirit would come on somebody every now and then When he had assigned somebody to a task But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit was going to fall on all believers. That happens in Acts chapter 2. You could argue that what happened in Acts chapter 10 in the household of Cornelius was the Gentile Pentecost. Acts 10 is the equivalent for the Gentiles of what happens for the Jews in Acts chapter 2. And I think you would have a good point in saying that. But nonetheless, Pentecost, as it happened here, was a one-time event. But though it was a one-time event, it continues to communicate some powerful principles to us today. The question is, could you even get the modern day church, fellowshipping together and waiting and praying and studying the scripture for a period of 10 days. I've got my doubts that we would even do that. Folks, it's interesting when you look at the history of major movements of God and revivals and periods of renewal and restoration. One of the characteristics of all of these times is that the people of God were not in a hurry with the things of God. They were not in a hurry. Everything else in life took a back seat. All of the great awakenings and revivals in history took place as God's people waited upon the Lord for weeks and weeks, sometimes even months. There would be periods of protracted uh, prayer, reading and preaching of the Word of God. These were things that were common. They'd meet together and sometimes for hours... They'd just open up the Bible and read chapter after chapter after chapter, book after book and the people of God would gather to hear the word of the Lord and they would have extended times of prayer, seeking the Lord and calling upon the name of the Lord and then there would be sermons, sometimes long sermons. But you know today we're in such a hurry, aren't we? Folks, say what you want about this, but I seriously doubt that the modern church will ever experience times of refreshing until we get back to periods of waiting before the Lord. Whether in your personal life, whether corporately as a body of believers, it's simply not going to happen without that element. It's interesting to see some of Christian history in more modern times. Go back to the Protestant Reformation, for instance, back in the 16th century. When that Reformation happened, what went with it? Now, all some of you are going to hear for the next five minutes is T-I-M-E. That's all you're going to hear, and you're going to miss the main point that I'm making. But I think of some of the reformers and then the Puritans. There was no hurry when they came to the house of God to do business with God. No hurry. In fact, when the church met together, many of the pulpits in Europe at that time had little metal rings on them. Does anybody know what those metal rings were? Our glass holders. Our glass holders. And the congregations would allow the pastors two, maybe three turns of the hourglass. There were extended times of prayer. Extended times of reading the Word of God. Sermons sometimes that would last three or four hours And then you come down to Baptist history Early Baptist history And the congregations expected their ministers On a Sunday morning To bring to them two One hour Usually around one hour Two one hour expositions of the word of God But again the point I'm making is There was no hurry. The people of God met together and they sought the face of God and they put everything else aside and they had the mentality, the most important thing that I can do on the Lord's day is seek the face of the Lord. That was their priority. Remember, it wasn't the Lord's hour or the Lord's minute, it was the Lord's day. And then you come into the late 19th century and then the 20th century and early to midway through the 20th century, what happened? Liberalism crept into our schools, then crept into our churches and pulpits in Europe and America, and confidence was lost in the Word of God. And along with confidence being lost in the Word of God, confidence was lost in prayer. A lot of lay people didn't realize what was happening. It wasn't announced. Nobody got up and said that there was no longer any confidence in the Bible. But that's what had happened. And the times of reading the Word of God and the times of prayer and preaching got shrunk down. You get into the 1940s and 50s and right on through the 70s. And the sermon was reduced to maybe 10 or 15 minutes and all kinds of other things Instead of prayer and preaching, we're put into the service. Prayer and preaching squeezed out. Church services, shorter and shorter. People got more and more in a hurry. They filled their Sundays up with other things. They no longer had confidence in the Word of God or prayer. And things got put on the fast track. And that's why even today, in some liberal mainline churches, you can go, if you want to hear a sermon of maybe 10 minutes, you can go and hear that. preacher will get up. He'll read a passage of Scripture, maybe a verse or two, because after all, it's church. We probably ought to have the Bible somewhere in here. He'll read maybe a verse or two. He'll close his Bible. He'll lay it aside. And for the next 10 or 12 minutes, oftentimes the Bible is not even returned to. You would not even know that the Word of God existed. What happened? Confidence lost in the Word. Thankfully, things beginning to change. You go to a lot of Southern Baptist churches today or reformed churches or Bible fellowship churches, and in our seminaries and our among our graduates the 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 the, the Uh, Pastors are being taught again. There's a high confidence in the Word of God again. And so uh, instructors or professors are saying, Guys, you've got to go back into the pulpits. There's a famine of the Word of God in the land. You've got to get back to reading the Word of God and expounding the Word of God. It takes a little more time, but it's worth it. So some of that's beginning to happen again today. Thankfully. Well, the myth is, well, pastor, in modern times, people just started paying attention to attention spans. And this myth has been, it's been shown now to be a myth that attention spans are a certain amount of minutes. But it's been shown that attention spans don't have to do with minutes. Attention spans have to do with interest. A man will go into his garage and tinker with his hot rod nine or ten hours. We'll get lost in a John Grisham novel three or four hours. We'll go to a four-hour ball game and cheer. And then when the ball game ends in a time, goes into overtime, everybody rejoices. It's going into overtime. Attention spans connected to interest. Folks, the point is, In the modern church, have we lost our interest in God? Have we lost our interest in the Word of God? Have we lost our confidence in the Word of God? Have we lost our confidence in prayer? Are we too busy now to mess with God? Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, the perfect sermon of all times, the Sermon on the Mount. You can sit down and read it in 15 minutes, preacher. But I want you to think of what's going on there. Keep in mind, Jesus spent three years with his disciples. Three years. Matthew, 28 chapters long. Mark, 16 chapters long. Luke. 24 chapters long John 21 chapters long Matthew, Mark and Luke are similar in their content and so they're called the synoptic gospels meaning similar Pretty much you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and you see similar events being recorded there but from a different perspective. You come to John's gospel that took place a little later than those three and you see a little different material. But any one of those gospels, even the longest one, you can sit down and in a period of about two to three hours you can read that gospel in its entirety. Now, Jesus spent three years with his disciples. What you can read in two or three hours, is that everything Jesus had to say? Is that everything he taught? No. In fact, how does John end his gospel? John ends his gospel by saying, if I were to record everything that Jesus said and did, it it would take the whole world to contain all the books that would be written. We know what happened in the Gospels. Uh, again, people say, hey, the perfect sermon, Sermon on the Mount, 15 minutes, but we know what happened because the Gospels tell us. In Mark 8, Jesus said to the disciples, these people have been with me three days. Three days. They're hungry. They're tired. They're exhausted. We need to feed them. On another occasion in the Gospels, it's the disciples that came to Jesus. And and they said, Jesus, this crowd has been with you all day long. They're hot, they're tired, they're thirsty, they're hungry. You've got to send them away so they can go home and get something to eat. They're famished. And Jesus looked at them and said, you feed them. And they said, what? Jesus said, what what do you have? And they said, well, here's a little lad with, with these loaves and fish, not much. Jesus said, bring it here. And there was the feeding of the multitude. But the point is, 15 minutes? I don't think so. I'm afraid that the modern church has lost its interest in the things of God. And folks, some of you, all you hear is a plea for longer Sunday school lessons or longer sermons, and and you miss the point. The point that I'm making is in our lives today, are we in such a hurry? Have we filled our lives up with so much that we don't have time for God anymore? We come to the house of the Lord with other worshipers. We've got one foot in the door and one foot out the door. We won't microwave everything. And what you see as you read the scripture, even in the Old Testament, and you you look at church history and what has happened when these major moves of God have taken place, and you see that God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work on microwave or drive-through schedule. Some people say, well, we've just got too many other things we want to do today. But evaluate those other things. Evaluate the eternal value in them. We've gotten to where in society today, even Sunday, the Lord's Day, is filled up with all kinds of other things. Sporting events and races and movies and and hobbies and work, etc., etc. And we've gone from God saying, one day belongs to me, to where we say, God I might occasionally give you one hour. And then we stand back and we wonder as we read church history about the great revivals and awakenings, and we ask, why don't we see things like that happening today? Has God died? Did God die? Nobody told us. Is God asleep? And we never seem to look in the mirror and say no. It's that we've gotten into too big of a hurry to even mess with God anymore. We've settled for the busyness of life and the mundane things of life that we want to do. And we've essentially said, God, I don't have time for you anymore. We would never say that with our lips, but it's what we're doing with our lifestyle. We leave home every day, we forget about our devotion time. If we have a devotion time, we use some of these little 60 or 90 second little devotion books. That's all I got time for. In our private lives, in our churches, the word of God and prayer and waiting on God gets squeezed out more and more and more. You look at each of our lives from the time we get up to the time we go to bed and where is God in your life and where is God in my life? Do we take time to sit before the Lord, maybe for hours You say, Pastor, you're crazy. Maybe hours with the open Bible, a pen in hand, and we just sit before the Lord and we seek God and we want Him to speak to us. Do we model our day? Mark 1, 35 says Jesus would get up while it was still dark. He would go out to a lonely place and he would pray, here's the Son of God seeking the face of God early, trying to commune with God. And so oftentimes, what will I do? I'll get busy about whatever I'm doing and might go through the course of the day and never have even cracked the Word of God open. Too big of a hurry. Too big of a hurry. We don't wait on God. We ignore Him. And the result is that we live our lives and our hearts and minds and churches in a spiritual wasteland, a spiritual desert, and the sad thing is we've grown to prefer it that way. Folks, do you realize there has not been any type of great awakening or revival since the 19th century? Since the 19th century. And then in dissatisfaction, we start saying things like, well, maybe what I... Maybe what I need to do is just go to a different Sunday school class. Or, oh, we've we've got to get new music into the church. Oh, that's the key that will bring it back. New music in the church. And we never stop to realize what's happened. It goes over our head, parts our hair down the middle, and we're too spiritually dull to see what has happened. In our personal lives and in our corporate life as a body of believers, We're too busy for God. We're in a hurry. How long has it been? How long has it been since you maybe took two, three, four hours in a quiet place all alone? Nobody knew you were doing it. Just sitting before the Lord with His Word and in prayer and saying, God, God, I need you. I need you to speak to me. I need you to warm my heart. I need you to renew my heart. I need you to revive my heart, God, more than anything else I have going on in my life today. God, I need you. How long has it been? What does the scripture say here? They devoted, they continually devoted themselves to prayer, to the Lord's word. It's not just here. As we read on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that was the characteristic as they met. As they met together, they waited before God and they sought the face of God and they read the word of God, they they preached the word of God, they fellowshiped together and they waited on God until God moved and God spoke. It was the practice of the early church. They waited and they prayed. They obeyed, they waited and they prayed. Last thing I want you to see with me this morning is they were convictional. They were convictional. Look at verse 15. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Look at what Peter says here. The scripture had to be fulfilled. Folks, you remember what Jesus said about this in the Gospels? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot, not one tittle of my word will pass away. The scripture had to be fulfilled. What Peter does is connect what Judas had done in betraying the Lord. Peter connects what Judas did with the word of God. Remember, Jesus had said to his disciples, I chose you and yet one of you is a devil. So folks, this didn't take God by surprise. In the sovereignty of God, God chose a disciple who would be instrumental in Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. Now just because God ordained it, it didn't mean that Judas was off the hook. You see, the scripture has this tension that you and I have got to be satisfied to live with. On the one hand, God is completely sovereign and in control even to the point of determining somebody's destiny. And yet at the same time, that person that God has determined their future, they are still morally and spiritually responsible for the choices that they make. Now notice what Peter's speech highlighted here. There are two main things that he said. He said first God had appointed this to happen and secondly somebody is supposed to take his office. That's why I disagree with G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan is one of the greatest Bible expositors of all times bar none. But G. Campbell Morgan says what they were doing here was wrong. They were supposed to wait all the way to chapter 9 of the book of Acts when God called Saul, turn him into the apostle Paul. God was going to round out the 12 with Paul. Here they're getting ahead of God and they're putting man's choice in. But folks, as you read this passage right here, that's not what Luke is communicating. You get the impression from reading this passage here Luke recording Peter getting up. What they were doing right here was exactly what God had said in the Word of God needed to happen. Peter gets up and he quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And that's why they do what they're about to do here. And also don't get hung up on the differences between Luke's account and Matthew's account. Luke says here that Judas bought the field. He fell headlong and he burst open. Matthew says that when Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver uh, back at the religious leaders, they are the ones who bought the field. And then Judas went out and hanged himself. Two different witnesses are recording the same event from different perspectives. You see, even if the leaders purchased the field, they did so with the money they'd paid Judas. And so it would have been considered the same as had Judas bought the field himself. And it's believed that Judas hanged himself and in the hot sun, the, the dead corpse swelled up. And over a period of hours or days, the branch broke or the rope broke, he 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 hit the ground when he did so, his body burst open. And so which happened? Did he hang himself or did his body burst open? Both happened. Both. Folks, the beauty of the Word of God showing its accuracy is that two different witnesses record the very same event from a slightly different perspective. And that's always been shown to be a mark of authenticity among witnesses. Today, investigators investigating a crime, if they sit two witnesses down and those two witnesses say exactly the same words, it's they're parroting one another, then the investigators know that they've gotten together and kind of rigged and rehearsed their testimony and it doesn't mean as much. But if they sit down with two witnesses separately and both of them tell basically the same thing but in totally different ways, hey, they know they can trust those witnesses. That's why young people today got it all messed up. Siblings got it all messed up. They sit down, they rehearse together what they're going to tell their parents to get away with something. Hey, they need to kind of need to vary their testimony up a little bit, right? A mark of authenticity when there is a little bit of difference. Now notice what they did. They set down the qualifications of what uh, an apostle was to be. In verse 21 it says, So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become... With us, a witness to his resurrection. As I've told you before, this right here is why in the modern day there can be no apostle, no office of an apostle, not at least in the same vein of the original twelve. Like I've mentioned to you before, going on vacation this summer... Some of you might go through little towns, back road towns on your way down to the beach and in some of these little back road towns out on a church sign you might come across some little church and it'll say our pastor is Apostle Reverend So-and-so. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop the car, go in, talk to that pastor. Tell him that your pastor says... There are no modern day apostles according to Acts chapter 1. And by the way, when you get done with that conversation, call me and let me know how that goes. (laughs) They came up with only two people that could qualify, two men, two men. First they prayed, they turned the matter over to God And then they took the vote And don't get hung up here with what they did I'm going to explain it to you The casting of the lots At this point Before the Holy Spirit Fell on the church in Acts 2 They fell back on the Old Testament Regulation for making decisions Do you remember in the Old Testament The Urim and the Thummim The stones that the priest would have in his breastplate you remember that and each stone would be different or it would have a different inscription on it representing each side of the vote and in the Old Testament they would take the urine and thumbing out and whichever stone fell out first they concluded that was God's will that's what they're doing here The casting of the lots, it's like the Old Testament, urine and thumbing. Now, incidentally, folks, this is the last time in the Bible something like this ever happens. From Acts 2 on, they rely on the Holy Spirit to give them direction. Just like Jesus said in John 14 to 16, when the Holy Spirit comes, He'll be your counselor, your helper, and your teacher, and He'll show you what you need to do. But at this point, they trust God to use this process of the lots. And they trust the name that falls out first is the one that God has appointed to fill Judas' place. You say, Pastor, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what they were doing. Trusting the sovereignty of God in this. Folks, think of it this way. When we bring important matters before the church family, we'll tell the church family some big decision we're about to have. We'll discuss it without a vote. We'll send you away. We'll say, take a, take a week or two to pray about it. And then when we come back for the vote, what are we assuming? We're assuming that you've been praying about it for that week or two. And then when the vote is taken, God's will has been done. That's what was going on here. That's what they did. And so they were convictional about a couple of things. First of all, they trusted the Word of God. And secondly, they trusted the sovereignty of God. Obeying, waiting, praying. Now, a question for you this morning. Is there anything in your life of which God has been speaking? Is there sin that you need to turn away from? Is there something that you need to embrace? Is there something God has been calling upon you to do and as of yet you've not done it? Obedience. If you and I want God's blessings on our lives, we must be obedient. Are you obedient? Secondly, are you willing to begin looking at some of your days a little differently? Are you willing to mark off some time in your life where you sit before the Lord? Open Bible, pen in hand. Reading His Word, reflecting on it, asking God to speak to you times of prayer before the Lord. Instead of these little 60-second devotion things. Are you willing to wait before the Lord? What needs to change in your life? Could you look at your hobby in life, rearrange a little time that more time can, can go into the things of God? Maybe. Let's say you watch four or five hours of television today and say, I don't have time. Yeah, you do. Just cut off that TV one of those hours. Stay up late. Get up earlier. In the course of your day, do something where you get before God as a way of life. Don't be in such a hurry with God. Somebody says, Pastor, I'm not going to do that. If God's going to speak to me, i got five minutes. Listen, if that's your attitude, I can promise you one thing. I can promise you, you will go through your life and you will miss God. If you are not willing to sit before the Lord and pray and wait and study His Word... You will go through your life and you will miss God. Is it worth it? I don't think so. Don't be in such a hurry with God or the things of God. Are you convictional? Do you trust the Word of God? and the sovereignty of God. So when you take the word of God and you pray about it, you trust God is in charge and God is able to direct and lead your life. Do you believe that? Are you convictional? They were convictional. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of these men and women. What? What a testimony to the church today. God, forgive us that we are in such a hurry. We've even taken the Lord's day and we have squeezed it down. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, I believe you're looking for a people. You're looking for a man or a woman or a people Who will take time with you and won't be in a hurry. God, I pray that we would be that people. That there would be nothing else that we're doing with our lives that is more important than you. God, get us to that point. Lord, if you're speaking to somebody here specifically about how this week even they need to start rearranging some of their schedule, to put you first in their schedule, God, give them wisdom in what to do and what needs to change. Lord, perhaps you're dealing with somebody else about an issue of obedience that they've been struggling and fighting you over. God, I pray that you bring them to a point of surrender. That one, perhaps, that's been putting off, getting their heart right with you. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would work on them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.